Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. The Academy has been leading in this field for 27 years, but I've got to say this is the most exciting time we've ever seen. The possibilities are turning into realities, and the challenges are calling all of us to become our best selves. Today we'll be talking about three major topics in the news, climate change and the incredible effects of global warming, the situation in the Middle East, and a radical solution to bringing an end to the Israel-Palestine conflict, as well as a new future to the people across the region. And third, we'll be discussing a solution that could bring about a new energy paradigm for the planet, starting with a pilot project here in California. In the lightning round, we'll discuss ways to protect your investments, including our outlook for inflation. But, Ronaldo, to start, can you give us an update on the current state of climate change and what we're seeing across the globe? Sure, Matt. Thank you. And, you know, it's interesting. This week alone, uh, and we're, we're recording this show on the 21st of August, so you get some sense of um, the doldrums of summer, as it were. And what we saw in the news just this week is Arizona was hit with an unprecedented flash flood. According to one news commentator on CBS, the amount of rain that fell in Arizona in 15 minutes was the amount of rain that falls typically an entire year. That's an extraordinary statement. In the very same 24-hour period, however, the city of Hiroshima, unfortunately made famous by the Hiroshima bomb uh, in World War II, received an enormous inundation of water that caused a massive landslide. And in a country not known, we don't think of Japan as a developing country, third world. We think of Japan as a right-on-the-money kind of modern country, the second now the third largest economy in the world. So Japan is not a backward nation, and it got caught by surprise by a massive deluge of water that literally welped out a hillside of people. Now, in fact, Shinzo Abe, the, the um, prime minister, entered his vacation prematurely just to come back and personally survey the damage. It was quite extraordinary. Okay, what are those floods about, and why am I leading off with that in climate change? I want to remind everybody, and I think it might be a good idea periodically, once every three or four months, to do a climate change update. We are now in the straight vertical portion of the hockey stick. We've entered that domain. Actually, we're just about to enter it based on a few factors. And what that means is that the amount of environmental destruction we thought was unprecedented a year ago is now not the new normal, as people hope. It is actually a precursor to dramatically worse situations, which will be coming year after year, not decade after decade. So these two floods, these flash floods, were occurred because the amount of water moisture in the air, as the planet has heated, the amount of water moisture has gone up. By some calculations, not less than 5% in the last decade, and by some calculations, 6% or more. So we're talking about much wetter air. Now, when wetter air, moisture air, has a warm and cold front collide, the air comes, when that, in that collision, occurs a storm, and it, the air then drops its moisture to the ground in the form of rain, hail, or snow. By the way, in the same exact week, the same week where Arizona was flooded, I mean, rivers of mud, um, 
And, and it happened so suddenly that um, 15 minutes before the flood, nobody knew it was coming, and two hours after the flood was over, the water was all gone because Arizona is so parched. But in that same week where Arizona and Hiroshima had a hillside wiped out, Mexico City actually shoveled two and a half feet in many places of hailstones. Wow. And now this is, this is August of 2014. So you're talking about weather weirding on a massive scale. And, and the reason for that is this supersaturation of moisture in the air, which will continue to accelerate as the climate continues to heat. Now, we know that the, we're over 406 parts per million of CO2 in the upper atmosphere. And that's the number everybody looks at, and I want to, again, celebrate and salute uh, Bill McKinnon for you know, keeping his eye on 350.org, the, the idea that 350 parts per million should be our maximum. But what people need to be listening to this show for is the increasingly greater damage being done to the planet's environment by the release of methane from the permafrost and the deep of the ocean. Those two kinds of releases are now causing an acceleration of the melt of the polar ice caps, a rapid acceleration, an acceleration of the Greenland ice sheet, the virtually total elimination now of, of glaciers in Switzerland, and of course the, the, the dramatic decrease in glacier coverage in uh, the Himalayan high plateau, which feeds the five great rivers of Asia. So the, these dramatic changes are going to be felt now in, in, in many ways. You're going to have periods of flash flooding of, 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 of biblical proportions. One guy commenting on the, on the flood in uh, Arizona said it was sort of like watching the, you know, the beginning, the, the prelude to the film Noah. By the way, in this same month of August, Long Island, New York, received more, more moisture in many parts of Long Island than it did in Superstorm Sandy. It, it literally, the cars were floating down the middle of the roads in Long Island. So in, in this supersaturated air, you're going to see these incredible conditions of flash flooding with, with huge consequences because we're simply not prepared. Right now, there's an estimate that 65 to 70% of all the sewage systems in America are being basically threatened by being overrun by street moisture. And as I understand it, hundreds of millions of gallons of raw sewage are being pumped out into our oceans, rivers, and streams because of it. So there are these destabilizing effects in every direction. But then these, these, these enormous um, deluges are being accompanied in between by periods of enormous drought. So you've got drought and flood hand in hand. On top of that, you have this the situation which is most profound with the melting of these glaciers, the Greenland ice sheet, the, 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 particularly the snowpack in the Arctic, what you're seeing is a less reflection, or the albedo effect, less reflection of light off of the glaciers back into space, meaning when a glacier is sitting there or a polar ice cap is sitting there, the solar energy hits it, the sunlight hits it, and bounces back, over 80% bounces back into space harmlessly. When the snowpack isn't there or the glacier's missing or the polar ice cap is missing, that same solar energy then hits the, the ground or the water and becomes part of the planetary heating phenomenon. So what, what we have, what we call it the Academy, is a negative environmental feedback loop. There's nothing positive about it. It's one negative factor is contributing to another, to another, to another. And we are at a point now where the hockey stick that Gore basically popularized in his book Inconvenient Truth in the movie is where we find ourselves today. 
So whenever I turn on the news and I hear of these extraordinary weather events and people are still using old-fashioned terminology like unprecedented, well, it's not unprecedented, um, storm of the century, it's not the storm of the century, a thousand-year storm, it is even a thousand-year storm, it's the new normal. And what we need to do is to say to ourselves, are we willing to accept are we willing to accept as a human species this level of damage, destruction, and ultimately a lot of death, or are we willing to change it? That's our choice. And in putting our head in the sand will not make it go away. It will only accelerate it. So I want to urge everybody to think this through. We have a planet to save. The planet's going to be here long after humans are gone. But if humans are going to make this planet livable again, we're going to have to reverse the damage we've done because we have to break this negative cycle. We have to stop putting fuel on the fire. We have to begin looking at how we're going to live in harmony with nature, and we have to begin to look at how we're going to re-chill those glaciers and the permafrost to make it permanently frozen again and hopefully to re-chill the hydrates at the bottom of the sea. So that's what our challenge is. Um, it's go to zero CO2 emissions as fast as possible, find ways to extract CO2 from the atmosphere and put it into solid form, which we already have one economic way to do that, and hopefully even uh, engage in some geoengineering uh, experiments, one of which the Academy wrote up a couple of weeks ago for Richard Branson, how you could use um, basically a, a technique to help the Earth chill from outer space. So um, and we could do a show on that whole thing if you wanted, Matt. It's an interesting topic. Yeah, so I want to I ask a question here, Ronaldo, because it's been a theme of the academies, which is to provide business solutions and bring information like that, that we do research on to the business community. So I'm wondering if you have uh, business drivers or business solutions to the climate change crisis that might help change the political stagnation that we've seen. Yeah, you know, and, and, and let's, let's it, on the broadest basis, and you were on a phone call just uh, what a day or two ago with Mindy Luber, who's the president of Ceres, and um, in that call, she asked that same question a different way. She said, what are some of the ways that we can help identify the winners and the losers? And, 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 and we went through a list of there are certain industries that could become losers. Fossil fuel industries would be an example. So if King Coal, which reigned supreme for over a, dec over a century, a century and a quarter maybe, a century and a half actually, uh, you know, 150-year reign of King Coal, the people who owned the coal mines never saw that they were an energy company. They thought they were a coal company. So they never switched to new forms of energy, even when the handwriting was on the wall, that we'd be getting rid of coal. That's an interesting right. statement. That made them a loser. Some of the winners in that same period were companies like Sun Energy, which pioneered ways to finance photovoltaic on people's rooftops. So Jigger Shaw is a wealthy man, having been a poor Indian a decade ago. Now, my reason for pointing that out is there are winners and there will be losers. What I find fascinating is we get the choice. I always like to point out as a businessman, you know, there were thousands of buggy manufacturers at the turn of the last century, 1900. I mean, you had buckboards, you had you know, two-wheeled country buggies, you had four-wheels, you had stagecoaches. Wagons were used for hauling merchandise and people all over the country constantly, every day. There were thousands of manufacturers. Anybody could throw one together. And only one that we know of survived. 
And that one was the Fisher brothers, who decided it didn't matter whether a horse pulled their carriage or an internal combustion engine. So they decided to make bodies for this company called General Motors, and they became lionized or famous as Body by Fisher. So the Fisher brothers actually made that transition. They didn't see themselves as a horse and buggy manufacturer. They saw themselves as a vehicle manufacturer, and they didn't care what the propulsion system was. We would argue that the winners of today are in that same boat. Uh, Elon Musk's Tesla has turned the automobile industry upside down. Why? Because it sold so many cars, it dented GM and Ford sales? No, hardly. You know, uh, Musk, in his, in his wildest dreams, it will sell hundreds of thousands of cars, not tens of millions. What he did, though, is he introduced a new consciousness, a new way of thinking. And in an industry where everybody said you couldn't possibly get to break even if you started out with just one vehicle, no matter how innovative, he turned that on its head. And now, as you know, Elon is in a battle state by state with dealerships who go to their legislatures to try and make selling Teslas illegal in their state. They try to ban them from having uh, a storefront. They try to ban them from having repair facilities. It will not work uh, for the simple reason, and, uh, and Victor Hugo best captured this in his famous quote, there's nothing that can stop an idea whose time has come. Well, the time for alternative vehicles has come. Yeah. So if you see yourself as a buggy maker, you're out of business. If you see yourself as somebody who makes personal and, and uh, um, personal transportation systems and, tra- and, and cargo transportation systems, you've got a great future. Now let me apply it to Exxon. If you think your business is oil and gas, which is what most of, if not all, of the major energy companies think, you will be on the dustbin of history like the dinosaurs that are no longer with us. If you see yourselves as energy companies, you could retread yourself into an enormous future. Let me give you one example, and I'll stop. 125, 30 years ago, a a small company got started selling one product. The product was a light bulb. The company was GE. So now it's 2014. GE is one of the largest industrial companies in the world, and it doesn't even make light bulbs. Why? It never thought, it never got trapped into thinking it was a light bulb company. It was a company that was pioneering innovative technologies, initially only in the electrical field, ultimately across a wide variety of fields. And just last week, it was finally publicly known, we'd heard about it for months, but now the word is out publicly, that GE is going to, be, is going to vie to become one of the largest manufacturers of fuel cells in the world. That's encouraging news. We understand Rolls-Royce will be coming to market too. And we already have Bloom Energy and we have uh, fuel cell energy. So we've got four companies just making, just targeting on fuel cells alone. And I believe within less than a decade, that won't be four companies. It won't even be 40 companies. It will be at least 400 companies making some key component or fuel cells as a whole thing. Because fuel cells are the wave of the future, not internal combustion engines or gasoline-powered power plants. Right. Natural gas or otherwise. That's excellent. And, you know, one, one piece from this conversation that's been missing uh, is the, the political drivers that have helped enable some of the advanced energy economy companies to spring up. Um, there's a big push right now, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, on actually putting a price on carbon internationally. Do you see that happening, and what effect could that have for business? 
Well, first of all, let's talk about the merits. I think a carbon tax would be absolutely the best thing we could possibly do. Uh, you, Matt, you're younger, you're more connected to the political system than I am. I'm a, I'm a business guy for 40 years. So I can't answer the political question. I think maybe you'd have a better insight to that. Is it possible? Can we do it? I would comment, and as you know, I spend a lot of time in Europe, just got back, which, by the way, when I got back from Europe, one of the things I went to see was the largest hydroelectric plant ever built in Europe. It's being built in Switzerland, and we can talk about that if you want, about how that's an example of a 19th century technology that's waiting to be adapted to a 21st century application. But, but putting that aside, driving there, I ended up seeing where the glaciers used to be in Switzerland, a country known for glaciers, and you can't find them. I mean, if you can find a sliver of one left, you're lucky, and that's going to be gone within five to seven years. So, uh, and as you know, Mount Kilimanjaro will have no ice at all during any part of the year, I don't think, within five years or so. So we have a, we have a, a crisis going on, and, and would we be able to pass a carbon tax? I would hope so. Let me, and let me just tell you the, the, the merits for it, and then, then I'll answer your question of what it would do for business. The merits are very simply this. There is no business I know of in America that is allowed to put its trash on the curb and not have to pay to have it hauled away. I can't, I can't open a restaurant and say, you know what, I'll just toss the food scraps out the next morning in the gutter. Who cares? And I'll toss the paper plates out and the plastic cups and, you know, to heck with it. I'm not going to clean up after myself. The only industry with an exemption from that rule is the fossil fuel industry. They're allowed to put enormous quantities of garbage called carbon dioxide, nitrous oxides, and other noxious greenhouse gases. They're allowed to put them in the air, our common property, the air I breathe, you breathe. They're allowed to do that whenever they feel like it. And they're not taxed for putting that pollution and crap in the air. So a carbon tax to me is merely applying a very equitable principle that everybody in business deals with, which is you've got to clean up your own mess. You know, I, I can't believe the carbon-based companies are, are trying to fight this one when it's something they should have learned in kindergarten. Everybody knows yeah. you're supposed to clean up your own mess. So a carbon tax would be an ideal way to approach it because it cuts to the heart of the matter. We shouldn't be creating that garbage and putting it in the air. And if you tax it, you will incentivize business to eliminate it. Now, the other advantage would be once you tax carbon, which is creating all these noxious uh, effects on the public commons, you would then make renewable energy, which is already competitive, you would make it a slam dunk and you would see a sea change, a, literally a dramatic conversion over to alternative technologies rapidly. And you might even see the, the oil companies waking up to their own future and they might choose to use their vast resources and political power to get on the right side of history and the future side of their own P&L and balance sheet. You yeah. know, it's interesting you ask that question today when just this morning the settlement was announced, the Bank of America case, eight, uh, Bank of America agreed to an additional $17 billion, $10 billion for government, $7 billion for consumers, because of the role they pay, played in the mortgage crisis. Now, to put that in context, Bank of America is the largest retail banker. I mean, you could say Chase is larger in some ways, but for a, almost a pure retail bank in the way they are, Bank of America is certainly one of the top five banks in America, in the world, I would say. And um, they are now going to end up having paid, and it's not over yet, $80 billion. Just put, put the $17 billion that they agreed to this morning in context. That's three years' worth of profits, which, by the way, we created artificially. I'll come back to that if we get a chance later, because the Fed basically created those profits so they'd have the money to pay it. Right. Putting that aside, 
the total bill they will have paid when that last $17 billion is gone is $80 billion. They will recover from that. In fact, the price of the stock went up just a hair because the public is so relieved that they agreed to do it. Why did B of A agree to the largest fine in the history of the United States? Why did they do that? They did it because they were getting hurt two ways. Their litigation expense to fight it was going up and up, and the size of the judgment wasn't coming down. So the normal tactic of wear the government down so you'll pay a smaller fine didn't work. Eric Holder's Justice Department held firm. Thank goodness. And they would not let them get off scot-free. The second reason it happened was because Bank of America is increasingly getting a black eye with the American public. And because they are a vast retail banking network, meaning they, they have all these outlets across America where people put their ATM cards in, where they deposit their payroll checks, where they take out their car loans and their, their mortgages and whatever else, that bank was starting to feel the pressure and could see the handwriting on the wall that if they continued to hold out and resist, the customer damage to them would probably be greater than the $17 billion they paid. So what can, what do, what's the lesson for business here? The lesson is there will be more and more losers every day from climate change, from, by the way, Lloyds of London has told people, you must take climate change into effect now if you're going to write a policy, an insurance policy. So from climate change, you're going to have this impact. You're going to have this impact from, from the shift in public consciousness about what we do and don't want to have in our lives. Example, and this is my final one, I predicted on the show two months ago that despite 45, 50-year pattern where the, where the oil companies always raise the gas prices because of the, quote, summer driving season, because of the, quote, need to, to convert the refineries over a different grade of fuel, and because of anything they can hang their hat on, like something going wrong in a minor way in the Middle East. And two months ago on the show, I said, the Middle East is in flames. It's going to get worse. Unfortunately, it has. I don't know if we're going to come back and talk about that. But uh, as bad as the Middle East is, and, and they made a huge hue and cry about how the Middle East is going to be, you know, we could cut off our gas supplies and, and, and we're going into the peak driving season and they've tried to run the price of gasoline as they've done every year for 45, 50 years up higher. And I said two months ago, they will fail. And in fact, they have failed. I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that the price of gas has been going down for six weeks at the pump. And just this morning, it was announced that it's going to go down further here in the Southern California area. Why is that happening? How did I know that would happen? Which, by the way, gives businesses who want to make a lot of money a huge asset. If you know where the price of fuel is going to be six, eight weeks before it gets there, the amount of money you can make on that is astronomical. So there's a lot of ways business can turn into winners in this crisis. But how did I know? Because I was looking at what are called fundamentals. And the fundamentals were there was too much oil floating around the world and people weren't using as much of it anymore. And the, and the population that's really done the best job of reducing oil consumption is probably the United States of America. Because not only did we con, do we consume about 5% less today than we did just four or five years ago because of our driving habits and the, the rapidity with which we shifted to energy-efficient cars or more energy-efficient cars from boats. And it's uncommon to see a Hummer on the streets of America anymore. And when you do, you tend to feel pity for the driver because you realize that's an ego that absolutely hasn't got the message. But having said that, the, the key issue is if you know that people are using 5% less, and they are in America, and you know, as much as I hate fracking of and natural gas and of oil, and you know the U.S. is becoming increasingly self-sufficient on energy, in fact, is becoming an energy exporter, 
it stands to reason you're not going to be able to sell as much oil in America. And when America reduced its oil habit consumption by 5%, it dramatically changed the whole game. When we reduce it, and I've said that on the show for 6 to 12 months, reduce your fuel consumption by 5%, you'll change the, 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 the future course of the planet, the history of the planet. Reduce it, please, by another 5% in the next 12 months, and you won't believe what it'll do. It could literally bring peace to the Middle East. So I'm hoping people get the message, continue to be fuel efficient, and you'll help us solve a global crisis on many levels. On the political front, my uh, only comment is that we have a huge uh, challenge ahead of us. About a year, a little over a year from now, towards the end of 2015, are the Paris Climate Accords. And there's a possibility coming out of that that there will be real international action on uh, climate policy. Uh, we're seeing some signs that governments are taking it seriously. Um, and I am hopeful, but guardedly optimistic about 2015. Uh, so that's, that's my comment on the political possibility of actually seeing policy change. Um, to, a, a note to our listeners, you know, you're hearing some information that is extremely important that we get out and that we spread a little wider. Uh, we want to keep growing our audience, and we ask you to help us with that. First, by spreading the word by sharing the email that you uh, receive with this download and sharing the, the link to the webpage with your friends and family. And also, we ask that you become a $25 a month associate member. If you go to our website and at www.worldbusiness.org, there's a link on the right that says Become a Member. If you click on that and start a membership, it goes a long way to helping us actually make this uh, continue to make this radio show possible. We can't do it without your help, and if you have the ability to do $25 a month, we would deeply appreciate it. Um, I think that this information is valuable enough to support, and, and clearly that's why I dedicate my time and energy to this, and Ronaldo does too. But uh, we, we would really like it if you could chip in and help us continue to do this. Um, well, yeah, anything you want to say on that, Ronaldo? Let, let me just tie to that. You know, uh, I've been saying for 30 years that I see the, the goal of the Academy is to basically share the vision, share the vision, share the information of what doesn't work, and share the vision of what can work, what will work if we put our minds, hearts, and, and, and consciousness to it. Number two, we have to build the network. So you've got to share the vision, then you've got to build a network who's willing to hold that vision. If all of us hold that vision of the world that works for everyone, and we hold it by ourselves, we're probably not going to ever see the vision in our lifetime become real. If we hold it collectively, you cannot imagine the power of collective intention and will when the network builds and decides that's what it wants. And then the third thing that happens after you share the vision and you build the network, then you can heal the planet. We are sitting, ladies and gentlemen, at a point where literally the survival of the vast number of people on the planet is, due, is incredibly in question. And you've already seen millions of people who've died from climate change. That's soon to become tens of millions, ultimately hundreds of millions eventually billions. And that's not something that's going to happen 100 years from now. It's going to happen, if you are right now under the age of 65, it's going to happen, a lot of it's going to happen in your lifetime. If you're under the age of 55, it's all going to be happening in your lifetime. If you're under the age of 45, you'll be the middle of it. So think of everybody who you know that's 55 or under, who will have to be living with this level of crisis, where literally hundreds of millions and ultimately billions of people are dying from lack of access to water, 
food or the violence associated with people who are willing to take food and water from you. Remember that the war ISIS in the Middle East was an offshoot of the Syrian revolution, which started because of a three-year drought in Syria. Thomas Friedman of the New York Times has written eloquently about that. And he's also done a television show on CNN on that same subject. So I really want people to understand, this is not something light. This is enormous. We are talking about survivability of Western civilization at the very least. Now, at the same time, there isn't one problem I've ever heard about, read, or seen that we can't solve with today's technology and resources, meaning even climate change, global population, all the problems that you hear about, we can solve with today's technology and resources. But we have to will it to be so. So we have to have a vision of how that happens. Stay tuned. The Academy will keep laying that out for you. We have to build a network. We've got to get each other engaged. You, you, it's no longer okay to be a sunshine patriot. You need to go out and recruit your neighbors to, to engage in this vision, in this conversation. You need to support the conversation happening. The $25 a month is the very least anybody can do. I don't care what your economic situation is. And last but not least, you then have to be consciously working to heal a planet we have badly overheated and which will not heal itself just when we stop abusing it. Ceasing to abuse the planet through more releases of CO2 tomorrow than we had today, that won't bring it around. We have to do more than cease to abuse it. We have to affirmatively repair it. And I want people to realize that's what we're up against, but we're capable of it. And if you and I engage as a network with a common vision, we can't even heal the planet. In fact, we will. So, Ronaldo, on that note, I want to move on. You set up a segue perfectly uh, talking about Syria and the state of affairs in the Middle East. Um, let's, let's talk about that because it's back in the news. It, it should be at the forefront of everyone's mind because it's such a crucial region. And we've talked about some unique solutions that could actually change the landscape there significantly. So if you wouldn't mind, please do lay out the the situation now and how you see it transforming. Yeah, okay. Well, first of all, um, the Middle East is a variety of conundrums all intertwined. <laughs> so one component of it, and the longest festering component since 1947, is the perpetual war between Israel and the Arab states. So uh, with what we saw just yesterday in Gaza, you know, an, an entire entire blocks being decimated by uh, uh, Israeli strikes. Uh, you know, the, the, the Hamas firing three rockets at Israel. I, I don't know what's the matter with these people. It, that doesn't get them anything. It, they don't even hit Israel. I mean, they get they get blown up with the Iron Dome that protects Israel. So they're sending rockets that don't do any damage and giving Israel an excuse to retaliate with even more violence. Now. Even in that situation where it would appear that the Palestinians are completely without enough resources to ever resist Israel, and they are, they're without resources. And even with Israel having all the military might all the way up to it, including nuclear weapons that it could do anything it wants in the Middle East, and almost no one can stop them. Even with that much firepower, Israel is locked into a terminal cycle of violence which threatens the state of Israel's very existence. I know so many of my Jewish friends who feel that same way. And I'm not just talking about the ones that are organized as J Street and other uh, peace groups in Israel. I'm talking about a much broader swath of the Israeli society that wants Israel to be tough on the Palestinians. But 
doesn't have any solution and is conf- to, to how do we get out of this in the end? And, and, and not only how do they get out of the cycle of violence, how do they get out of the fact that right now Israel is becoming increasingly an apartheid nation, where if you're an Arab and you're born and raised in Israel, you don't have equal rights with an Israeli citizen who's not Arab. That's not going to stand over time, because that cuts at the core of what the Jewish religion is all about, which is ultimately the religion of shalom, not the, the religion of the Iron Fist. So the religion of peace, which is what Israel is, has to find a new solution. And what Israel has said, in the clearest possible way, and what the Palestinians have said, there is no possibility for a two-state solution, period, and the statement isn't going to happen. That's tragic. I'm truly sorry that it's true, but I believe it is accurate. By the way, please observe that the West Bank Palestinians did not engage in any violence in this last go-round. To the contrary, the West Bank stayed calm and kept itself aloof above the fray, and as a result, Israel did not attack it. So the very fact that you could see something, in the case of the Palestinians in uh, the West Bank, not being brought into the cycle of violence, gives me hope for what I call the multi-state solution. So if the Palestinians are saying, a two-state solution is dead. The Israelis are saying the two-state solution is dead. The Americans are saying the two-state solution is dead. Let's all accept the two-state solution is dead. And it's certainly dead for the next decade, if not longer. What we need is a bigger, in other words, when you can't solve a problem with the level of thinking that got you into it, this is Einstein, I'm paraphrasing, you've got to switch your thinking. So the solution for Israel and for the Palestinians isn't to try and create a two-state solution anymore. The solution has to be to create a multi-state solution. And what I mean by that, and this is an area we're going to be seeking some financial support from, um, for, because if we, can, if we can develop a financial support for this project, we will be launching um, a new initiative to try and create a multi-state solution. And what we perceive to be the opportunity here is that Israel and the Palestinians alone, the two of them, cannot create an Israel-Palestine solution. Too many reasons it won't work. But if Israel were to take the leadership, and I'm pretty sure Palestine would come along, if Israel would take the leadership, now listen to the allies I think Israel could attract to this plan. I think there's a way they could attract the Jordanians. I think there's a way they could attract the Saudis and the Kuwaitis and the Arab Oil Emirates of the UAE of United Arab Emirates. I believe that can be created as a multi-state solution, but not as a two-state solution, meaning we need to have a Middle East regional accord. Now, people say, why would the Sunnis and the Kuwaitis, why would they ever agree to anything with Israel? And the answer is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the enemy that the Saudis fear more than Israel, and for longer. As I said, Israel's been a thorn to to the Saudis since 1947, the Shiites have been a thorn to the Saudis for over a thousand years. The real action people are getting distracted from in the Middle East is what's going on between the Shia and the Sunni. I believe there's a pan-Sunni alliance, which Israel could, would be a part of, both as a, a co-funding partner with the Saudis and in an innovative set of financial instruments the academies come up with, and could be a a technological partner for the 
Sunnis, to create a new pan-Middle Eastern Union where the common denominator would not be Israeli or Arab. The common denominator would be, are you in the pan-Middle Eastern alliance, the multi-state solution, where you eschew violence, you say no more violence, and you participate in a very innovative new monetary union that will rebuild the Middle East. And by the way, even the Saudis are going to need this because they're going to have to rebuild the Middle East faster than climate change can take it and put it underwater. So the Saudis are not exactly floating in petrol wealth anymore. It turns out that when you get below $100 a barrel, which we've been at now at West Texas Intermediate Crude for the last month or so, and I don't see any signs it's going to go above 100 bucks. below 100 bucks a barrel, the Saudis aren't going to have all the money they need just to keep everything they've already got going, let alone pay hundreds of billions, if not trillions, for adjusting to climate change. So there's an opportunity because climate change is a bigger macro lens with which to look at the Middle East. Within that bigger macro lens is a, is a smaller but still big macro lens called what do the Sunnis and the Israelis have in common? Their desire for modern societies, their desire for technological sophistication, which they need, their desire for financial sophistication, and to continue to develop in that region as countries that can produce more and more benefits to their populace or their populaces will revolt. The Saudi monarchy will be in jeopardy soon. It's in jeopardy now, frankly. So, so if we can if we can help them see in a multi-state solution, we have specific ways we'd like to do that in the academy. We believe Israel and the Saudis and the Jordanians could be the linchpins with the Palestinians of a pan-Middle Eastern uh, approach. And we believe that Hamas, left to its own devices in Gaza. Once the people of the West Bank see what they've gotten as a result of joining this league, and there's some other specific angles I want to talk about having to do with a joint military arrangement between Jordan and, and, and the West Bank, which will give the Israelis more comfort, comfort and, 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 and rest on the issue of not being attacked in the future. And Jordan gets relief from this enormous pressure of waves of refugees it's been suffering from. So everybody gets a win in this thing. And the people left out of the deal are the Shia in Baghdad, who run everything from Baghdad south in Iraq, and the country of Iran. They will be left out of the Union. And that's probably where we need to be right now, because that split, that schism between Sunni and Shia, is a more fundamental split in the Middle East, and one we can deal with in other ways in the future once we resolve the Israeli, Saudi, Jordanian, Palestinian questions. Uh, I've got more details, but that's the rough overview, and I think it bears serious consideration. Yeah, it's a really interesting concept um, to me, Ronaldo. I think that the uh, the exact lines you'd draw would probably also exclude Syria, depending, of course, what happens there. But at current, it's not a stable country to include in that kind of union. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. But see, that's an example, and I don't want to get lost in the, in the weeds here because there's a lot of details of this proposal. But take Syria as an example. Once there is a pan-Sunni Middle Eastern solution, which comes with an innovative new funding mechanism for all the countries in the Union, which I include the Palestinians in, once that occurs, the, the necessity for the Sunnis to continue to support financially ISIS and some right. of the other frontline terrorist groups, which the Sunnis have supported and particularly the Saudis, but the Sunnis generally have supported, because they wanted to have a front-line attack force. Like they needed to have soldiers in the field. 
The Saudi princes right. don't shoot and die. They just ride around in Mercedes. So they had to hire some Hessians, and they hired, in effect, this group called ISIS, which has become now a, it's like they're Frankenstein's monster. It, and so what's happening is the Saudis need to have a way to de-emphasize the support for the Sunni, uh, Sunnis that are parading around as ISIS. They'll be able to do that in this pan-Sunni conf- uh, configuration because what will happen is Iraq, which was never a country in the first place, and everybody on this show knows I've been saying that for nine years, and please go to our, our website and look up the article, Iraq is not a country or whatever. What's the name of that article I wrote nine years ago, Matt? I'm going to have to look it up. Um, it's Something essentially like, the one that lays out the three-state solution. Yeah. So what will happen is the three states are Kurdistan, which is already a state, and it's not going back underneath Sunni or Shia domination. Um, the, the Sunnis would get their Middle Eastern state they're looking for, which would comprise everything north of Baghdad up to where the Kurds are, and over into Syria. Once they carve that out, Syria will end up with a fraction of the people it used to have, and the people it has left will be Shia and Alawite, which are two subsects. In that reduced state, Syria is no longer a threat to anybody. And as you know, just this week, the last of the Syrian weapons, uh, chemical weapons, were destroyed, which is pretty yeah. exciting. So the, the I title think all of the, these things... Yeah. Sorry. Good. I was going to say the title of the, the piece is Iraq, in quotation marks, Exit from a, qu- from a Quagmire. Yeah. Okay. So go to the website and get that article, and you'll see what a three-state solution looks like. And that's probably what's going to emerge. And that fits beautifully in this multi-state approach I'm taking, at which point ISIS will get cut off from its funding base, and it will be increasingly isolated. And my guess is in that isolated state, the Sunnis will, che- will choose to have that state be more normalized, and that state could end up a caliphate, possibly, but I think more likely it'll, it'll end up as a modern Sunni state. That's my likely assumption. And in that configuration, the Shia would be left with Baghdad and everything south to Basra, and all of in Iran, they'd be left with their own alliances, which would include some of the Shia in Syria. Well, Ronaldo, I think you share my interest in our audience's questions on this issue. Um, this is clearly one of the most complicated places on earth, so a continued conversation is in order. But yeah, I hope that we can figure out how to support uh, some a program on this, because I think solving that problem gets us a long way towards solving many of the other global problems. Um, one, one other major one... And when you look at where Lebanon is next to Syria, and how mm-hmm. besieged by Syria Lebanon has been all these years, Lebanon used to be called the Switzerland of the Middle East. Under my proposal, Lebanon would be part of that pan-Sunni uh, uh, configuration, pan-European, pan-Middle Eastern configuration. And because of that, there are further buffer on Syria. And if you notice, because they have the common border, Israel's actually just touches in one little tiny place. So the real issue is giving Israel a safe way to withdraw back to the 67 borders so that the Palestinians can have a country of their own, so that the Israelis can have a country of their own, and that they can allow for people who are in either country who don't want to be there to go to, their, to, go to the other country. So, for example, Arabs living in Israel who prefer to relocate to the Palestine will have the opportunity to do so, probably supported by state grants, so that they can separate out and go back to their home, quote-unquote. 
Israelis who have been building on the West Bank will choose do they want to live as part of this new governmental structure, which will be Palestinian, uh, but under a common military agreement, a NATO-like agreement with Jordan, so that Jordan will be in charge of making sure that the Israelis are not attacked from the West Bank, uh, and therefore the West Bank can be, we can go back off the West Bank to the 67 boundaries. And eventually, as I said, Gaza will choose, I believe, to boot the Hamas out and voluntarily join the West Bank as part of a trans-Palestine uh, country uh, with some very minor adaptations. That's how you bring peace to the Middle East. You can't do it with just Israelis and Palestinians. You have to bring the entire region in, and you've got to come up with a win for every single country, which I think I can identify in some detail. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, another solution that we want to talk about here, Ronaldo, is the clean energy moonshot, which is a global energy transition starting with a California pilot project. Um, we're running a little tight on time, but I think that this is important. So what are your thoughts on this project and where we're going in the next between now and the next show? Okay, so the, the, real briefly, the, 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 the California Moonshot Project, and that's really what you're talking about here, right? Matt, you're... Well, I'm reframing it because we're changing the, the, the name of it to a clean energy moonshot so that it can actually have that global implication. Right. And, and, and the reason I, I called it the Calvary Moonshot is because we've referred it to that on this program before, and I want to explain Absolutely. to people what our language, yep. why we're changing the language. The reason we're changing the language is because it's become increasingly clear from countries as far away as India and other states in the United States and some foreign jurisdictions in Europe. The proposal we made for this California pilot project, which we always said was supposed to happen so that other people could copy it, we said if we can do this with what is probably the sixth largest economy in the world, the state of California, and certainly one of the more advanced economies in terms of technology, uh, genomics research, etc., let's take the California economy and create a pilot project showing how we can eliminate all fossil fuels, all fossil fuels within 10 years or less, and all nuclear fuels within 10 years or less, at no additional cost to the people of California except inflation, which is neutral. Now, that is such a bodacious statement that when we first made it, people would look at us and go, wow, what a beautiful idea, too bad it's so impractical. And then what's happened is that every step of the way, when we get challenged on some practicality, it turns out the best experts in that field agree with our approach. So, for example, we staked our, our reputation in our 19 years of alternative energy research on the belief that hydrogen was the economy that would replace fossil fuels. There's no question in my mind that will happen. As that happens, the winners will be the people who adopt that new hydrogen economy approach, and the losers will be the people who continue to fight and kick and scream as they're getting dragged out of the economic arena. Coal would be an example. I would argue that the investor-owned utilities would be a second example unless they get with the program. And I hope they do because I'd like the investor-owned utilities to continue to make this transition. But when you see people like General, companies like General Electric coming into the marketplace – because they recognize that fuel cell manufacturing is going to be a vast industry of the future. Uh, it, it's a validation. And, and when we first went to get that validated, we went to our own University of California, Irvine, where one of the best advanced fuel labs in the world exists for this very hydrogen question, run by a very, very uh, skillful engineering professor named Professor Scott Samuelson. And in our ongoing conversations with uh, Dr. Samuelson, We've been delighted at how much of what we thought was true from a business perspective turns out to be accurate. 
And it's also interesting how little attention has been given to his work up until now. I think the same thing is true with uh, Lorenzo Christoph's work, who's a, a deep future thinker for the California Independent System Operator, the people who run the grid in California. And Lorenzo's work on microgrids, which happens to describe the methodology we wanted to use in the moonshot, uh, Lorenzo's work uh, has never been properly uh, discussed at the higher le- highest levels of California society, and now it's going to be. Uh, people like Mark Jacobson from Stanford, who really have tried to get a conversation started on why can't we be 100% renewable, will be involved in this as well. People like Jigger Shaw, I mentioned earlier, uh, believes, as do I, that the entire conversion of the state of California energy system can be done by private capital for less than is currently being charged by the utilities. So there's all kinds of ways that this, the practicality of this idea is coming to the fore. We're the World Business Academy, Matt. We're not the World Theolo- Theosophy Society. We're not the World Theological Society. We're not the World Philosoph- Philosophical Society. We're the Business Academy. And our job is to go into the marketplace and find the best solutions that are available today and implement them and to lead business to these new opportunities, warning them that if they hang on to their old view of of history, they will be left in the dustbin. But if they convert and start investing their time, resources, and their thinking into the future, they'll actually be the new energy success stories. And like GE, they'll get to 125 years old and still be reinventing themselves. I love it. Uh, and that message is, we're bringing that message loud and clear to business uh, in the next month. So you'll, we'll have an update for you during the next show. But we're very excited about this, and it's what Ronaldo and I are putting most of our time into these days. And it's, it, the progress we're making is just phenomenal. So stick with us, support us, and and stay tuned for more information on that. Um, Ronaldo, I want to talk quickly about uh, your outlook for the economy in the lightning round. Are there any topics you want to hit on specifically here? Now, let's do this fast. And, and you know what, I, Matt, I, I want to start getting more questions from our listeners to respond to. Um, if our listeners are not interested in having this kind of financial information, um, we'll discontinue this part of the show, and we'll do it as a separate show. But if they are interested, I'd like to hear their questions. I'd like to have more people write us between shows saying, what is going to happen to inflation in the next 6 to 12 months? What's going to happen to the price of bonds in the next 6 to 12 months? What's going to happen to the price of gold in the next 6 to 12 months, et cetera? That, those are the kind of que- – and, and any other question you want. You know, is it a good time to still buy a house? Is it a bad time to buy a, a commercial office building? Um, where can I protect my savings and, and, and know that I can make a 5 to 7% inflation-adjusted return without taking risks with my capital? And how can I do that by investing in future technologies and not investing in Exxon Oil? Those are all questions I like to answer. And I can't answer them in, in a vacuum. So what I need is more people to ask me what they want to know. That said, the inflation outlook, as we have consistently predicted on the show, is for rising inflation by the second half of the year. We're now in the second half of the year. You're starting to see inflationary pressures on everything but the price of fuel. Uh, those pressures will continue to rise. Uh, you're going to see more um, uh, conversation happening at, at the level of the, of the Fed where they're going to be finding themselves in a position where they uh, are um, going to have a tougher time defending their easy money policy. Uh, There was an article in the New York Times just this morning on that very subject, uh, where an increasingly vocal minority of Federal Reserve officials want the central bank to retreat more quickly from stimulus so they don't aggravate the inflation which is coming. I think it's premature right now. I agree with uh, Janet Yellen that it's it's premature to back off just yet. 
Uh, we've already backed off the buying program. We, we, that, that, that's over. Uh, and raising uh, interim or short-term interest rates is probably a bit premature, although it will happen. And my guess is it will start to happen in the first quarter of next year, 2015. The economy has to be stronger for Yellen to think that that is a prudent thing, and that's what she's waiting for. And one of the reasons the economy is not stronger, by the way, one of the reasons it is stronger, is we now have had over six months in a row of over 200,000 new jobs being created. That's very good. And some of those new jobs are actually occurring at the state, I mean, governmental level, where they were decimated in all the cut, federal and state cutbacks of the last five years. So the, the state governments are starting to pick up more and more of the burden that the federal government used to absorb, because the federal government just continues to be locked up in a, a death throes uh, between the Tea Party and the Republican Central Party, who are fighting with each other and in the process stopping government till one side or the other wins. Uh, the, the recent elections that have happened uh, in, you know, just in that area are fascinating because several, like uh, the Senator Lamar Alexander uh, from uh, Tennessee, survived the Tea Party challenge, even though he came out in favor of immigration reform, which every sane person believes is right. So that he survived is going to give more Republicans courage. Uh, to come up with policies that are consistent with with historical conservative Republican ideology, but are not Tea Party crazy, and that you're going to see is increasingly the the challenge at the federal level. Can these two forces stop warring with each other so that legislation can pass? We're about to. I mean, we're witnessing the most unproductive, meaning the least productive Congress in the history of the United States, because it's the Congress about no. What they're going to have to do is address some of our challenges, and I don't see them doing it. Their failure to address those challenges is why the economy is not growing faster. The, the, the fact that the, con- that the House of Representatives stopped the minimum wage increase is a direct reason the economy is not growing faster right now. Uh, I, could, I could go on and on and on. If that the highway bill was only passed for an interim of a few months and it's going to expire again in May of next year, it's crazy. That we're going to have a debt ceiling fight again conceivably just crazy. So the federal government is completely locked up and, and I would say uh, unable to make a decision. An interesting article in the New York Times yesterday that the president did not seek approval in advance or retroactively on his bombing of uh, ISIS uh, in order to retake the Mosul Dam. His, his justification was if the Mosul Dam was breached, uh, then all the people downriver could be destroyed, including the Americans living in, 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 uh, in Baghdad. So he said, based on that, protect American lives, we're going to help the Kurds push back ISIS from that dam, which they successfully did, just using a very small amount of American air power and with no American casualties. So I, I, and, and, and the fact is that the president can't even get that approved and was quoted as saying in, in the New York Times today, that's the reason he didn't, he didn't ask Congress for permission. Congress won't give him permission for anything. So he's increasingly going to be forced to act on his own. I always like to say to my uh, Republican friends, if you think that we have an imperial presidency, the only reason there's, uh, he's making as many decisions as he is, which still is a fraction of any other president in terms of executive orders, uh, it's because he can't get anything through the Congress, and we've got to get it through the Congress. So now we're having 200,000 jobs a month in growth. That's raising some people. We still have to do something about the minimum wage. Thank goodness cities like Seattle, San Francisco, California as a state, other places are unilaterally, without waiting for federal permission or, 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 or approach. They're basically on their own raising the minimum wage, and that will help each of those areas grow faster than the regular economy. Watch for it. If you want to know the places where the economy is going to grow faster than anywhere else in America, watch the places where they voluntarily raise the minimum wage. 
that's the place to look. Excellent. Well, you know, Ronaldo, I think that the, in the few minutes we have left, it's important that we make the case here to our listeners again about essentially the work of the Academy and the history of the Academy here as a, a business support organization, uh, what, what we do to try to make business stronger and what we mean by that. Um, so if you have some words on essentially the, the history of the Academy and how it's worked and what we see as our mission in business uh, going forward, I think we'd appreciate sharing that. I'd be delighted. And I want to tie this to the earlier request we made for people to uh, give us their email address and bring more people to this show and help us craft the content of the show by your questions so that we can really be of service. The goal of the Academy is to serve the whole of society. So we've always said we want to be responsible for the whole. That's what we mean. The way we do that is because we concluded in 1986 that by far the most powerful institution in the world is business. And if business doesn't change what it does, there is no hope for the rest of us to be able to fix the damage. There's just too much money and power concentrated in business. Literally, the legislatures of all the key governments in the world work ultimately for business. The largest uh, independent sovereign nations are really becoming increasingly companies. So what we need, you know, over 50% of the top 100 economies are basically separate companies. So what we need to do is we need to have business care and make a difference. How can you help that happen? As we said earlier in the program, when you give us $25 a month, it's another research thing we can do. It's another way for us to stay, keep our voice on the air on programs like this. It's a way for us to be able to afford that plane ticket to go back to meetings that we get invited to all over the world to stimulate these conversations. But more importantly, it's a tremendous credibility booster for the academy. If, um, if the business community thinks that uh, Ronaldo and Matt are out here all alone, flailing away, they probably would respect our, our, our acumen. They would respect our commitment, certainly. They would respect our willingness to get in there and roll up our sleeves and get a lot of work done on almost no money. But they wouldn't really think that they had to listen because we would have attracted a bigger following if, in fact, we were accurate, or so, or so the criticism would run. For those of you who have listened to the show for any length of time, you know how accurate, stunningly accurate this program has been in predicting major turns in the economy, minor turns in the economy, in, predict, in predicting which technologies had some future application, which wouldn't would die out. I mean, everything from the price of gasoline over the next near term to what would happen to the price of gold, which we've been consistently right on, bond prices. All of these things that we predict are all designed to give us the credibility in the business community that we can create a vision which incorporates the business community because I'm a business guy. I couldn't afford to be doing this for free for the academy if I hadn't made enough money in business to survive on. So I'm a business guy. And I'm looking for business solutions, meaning I'm looking for practical ways in the marketplace to move the needle. But we've got a needle now that's so big that I can't move it alone. I cannot do this alone. I just want you people to hear this loud and clear. Everybody listening to this, I need your help. Every single one of you. I need every one of you. If you expect me or Matt and I or Matt and I, Professor Brown or a few others or Bob Perry to pull this off by ourselves, we're not going to do it. It isn't going to happen. This is about sharing the vision, which we do on this program and through our website. It's about building the network. You're that network. 
that network is not just our fellows. It's not just the businesses that pay attention to us. It's not all the businesses that are involved in the businesses, uh, the BAF alliance we, we developed. It's not just the president of series. It's not just Just Capital or any of these individual foyers that are all producing productive changes in consciousness in the business community and productive change results in the business community. In addition to all of that, we need a movement. We need enough people that when we show up on the street and we have an idea, it gets listened to. I'm confident, as I said at the beginning of the program, there's no way of stopping an idea whose time has come. The way you slow it down is if you don't get out and cheer it on. It won't stop it, but it sure will slow it down. And right now, time is our enemy. The hockey stick means that the climatical challenge we're facing is accelerating at a geometric rate. It's getting worse and worse by the moment. And it isn't going to look like it does today, five years from today. It's going to look dramatically worse. Do you want to keep hearing me say that and have you look back and go, boy, that turned out to be right. It got dramatically worse. Or do you want to create the solution? It's really up to you. And in that vein, uh, I, I, I created a video that, uh, well, actually, I did the audio. I, did a, I talked into a microphone. And two wonderfully talented guys uh, created a video, which I'd like you to see. Uh, uh, Louis, uh, who was the f- filmmaker who worked on it for us, and, and Gary Malkin, who donated so much of his time, Louis and he both. Um, I want you to see a video that we're going to post on our website Monday. And what it is, is I'm trying in that, I, they ask me what motivates me. What gets me to do what I do day after day, week after week? And as Matt knows, I don't work a nine to five, five days a week. I work a very long 12 to 14 hour a day week, six to seven days a week with very, very little time off. And I do that because I'm really motivated. And I'm not motivated to make a reputation for myself. I'm certainly not motivated to make any more money because I keep walking away from that. What I'm motivated by is my grandchildren. And I'd like you to know um, what came to me to share with you when I walked into this booth they set up and they asked me this one question, why do you care? And so I hope you'll look at that. I hope you listen to it. I hope you'll tell us what you think of it. And most importantly, I hope if that's not your motivation, because it is for me, you'll find what is your motivation. And when you find it, you'll take your little candle and you'll get it and you'll attach it to the light that I've got on mine and we'll pass that light around. And before you know it, the world will be on fire with our illuminated vision. And we as a network will be promoting the implementation of that vision, and the result will be we will, in fact, heal the planet. Thank every one of you for what you do. Thanks, Ronaldo. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can connect with us at worldbusiness.org. Send your questions and comments to info at worldbusiness.org. And as I said earlier, please do go to the website and click on Become a Member on the right side of the page to help support this work. Until next month, uh, thank you for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye now.